It is so redundant, so repetitive, and so stretched out with various people saying the same thing over and over again. It relies very heavily on a lot of middle-aged white dudes to mansplain why going to rent a video is important. One of my favorite critics, Christy Lemire, just burying the last blockbuster, which is our featured review this week. Christy does a great job for Film Week. Also check her out, NPR Los Angeles. Another former guest here on Cinephile, Glenn Kenny, the great film critic, wrote the book on Goodfellas, Made Men. How about his review for the New York Times? A pleasant but ultimately inconsequential movie. Ouch. We're talking with the last blockbuster a documentary featured on Netflix. It's our featured review. In addition to that, I finally saw, and props to Scott Feinberg, who had Ben Affleck on his podcast, Hollywood Chatter, and Affleck came across as incredibly likable. He's really funny. He's charming, self-deprecating. So I wanted to go back and watch Hollywood Land, which many people say is his best performance. They say it's the closest he's ever been to getting an Oscar nomination. He could have been up for Best Supporting Actor. So I finally saw his performance as George Reeves, Superman. It's the 15th anniversary of Hollywood Land. Also stars Adrian Brody and Diane Lane. In addition to that, Silver Lines Playbook was on. Showtime had a free preview, so hadn't seen it in a while. Got to watch my boy De Niro. Last Oscar-nominated performance. He was up for Best Supporting Actor and uh, just star-making performances from Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence. In addition to all of that, big new movie coming out this weekend called French Exit. Michelle Pfeiffer, one of the great roles of her legendary career. And we're going to talk to the director of that film, Azazel Jacobs. French Exit in theaters on Friday. Some sad news to pass along. We'll discuss Lucille Bluth, one of the all-time funniest characters and great actresses in comedy. Jessica Walter passes away. Nomadland wins big at the PGAs. Uh, and we'll also do the Mount Rushmore, actors playing movies. In, in honor of Hollywood Land, a Mount Rushmore performances of actual Hollywood stars. So, you know, uh, my week with Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe, right? Uh, Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. Chaplin. Robert Downey Jr. is Charlie Chaplin, that kind of thing. So there's lots of great options. I'm really looking forward to that, Mount Rushmore. As always, you can uh, give us some love here uh, for Cinephile on Apple Podcasts. Please do just subscribe, rate, and review. I rank my movies out of four Maple Leafs, but please rank the pod out of five stars. appreciate all the reviews, and that's how we always keep things rolling here. Keep the folks happy at Cadence 13, our parent company of Entercom as well. Um, the most recent review here from Meh Meh. Another awesome pod this week. Glad to see more and more theaters opening up. Ours are still closed this year. Have to admit, I snorted when I heard the Priyanka Chopra take. I feel the same way, LOL. Also, can we get any more info on Joe's date? Where'd you eat? Was it a good date? Joe, what is this about? So, yeah, that's when I went to go see Raya the Last Dragon. And so uh, I was I was on a date. I, I ate at the theater. At the theater, I ate popcorn and some Reese's Pieces. And it went well. It went well. She liked the movie. I liked the movie. Yeah, it was a good time. Uh, is this first date? Second date? Where are we at here? Oh, this might be the eighth date, Adnan, oh. at this point. Yeah. Okay, we're yeah. rolling now. So is this Starting to speed up, yeah. Oh, hang on a second. So wait, can we say she's your girlfriend, or is just someone you're seeing right now? You know, talk to me in three weeks. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. We're, we're starting to get there. We're at that weird phase. I love it. I love your uh, obfuscation of me trying to label your relationship. I hope she's a lovely gal. <laughs> One more question. Is she from the Midwest? Minnesota girl? Give me a little Twin Cities love. No, no. Actually, uh, North Carolina. Thick Southern accent. Oh, yeah. And great barbecue, I consume, yeah. Oh, my God. North Carolina. That's fantastic. A big Tar Heels fan, maybe. Oh, yeah. No, she went to, I think, Appalachian State. So, uh, as they call themselves, apps. They're, they're like, we have an app for that. And I'm thinking... Fun. That's a fun pun, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't bring that up on the date. Don't even worry. Okay, this is going to be a continuing theme here on Cinephile. Joe and his relationship. We'll just call it Joe and the Apps. <laughs> we'll see how things go. Uh, let's dive into Perfect. the last blockbuster. A documentary in the last remaining blockbuster video located in Bend, Oregon. So it's a pleasant diversion. 90 minutes here on uh, Netflix. little trifle. And I, listen, it is steeped heavily in nostalgia for all those of a certain age. Uh, I'm 42 years old. Joe's 31, I believe. So I don't think Joe is a big blockbuster guy. I feel like he knows what blockbuster is, but he wasn't like, you know, consumed by it. And if you're 20 years old listening to this podcast, you're going, what the hell's a blockbuster? Aside from the movies that Michael Bay makes. Blockbuster was the it place. I mean, listen, when I was in high school, uh, you go to Blockbuster, you go check out the movies and you have a video cassette, which you put in your VCR and you play, rewind, fast forward. Later on, you have DVDs. And I loved going to Blockbuster. Of course, as a movie nut, it's like going to the library if you're a bibliophile. I mean, you literally go, you stare at all the new movies, and Blockbuster would have like 20 copies of the latest new release. 
and you browse through, you hold the cover, you look at it, you think about it, you pick up the VHS tape or the DVD behind it, you go to the front of the counter, pick up some Twizzlers, pick up some chips, and away we go. And, uh, you know, back in the VHS days, be kind, rewind, and then with the DVDs, you got to return it in uh, two days, it's a two-night rental, otherwise there's an exorbitant late fee. And you go from there. And it was a pleasant time. It was a great way to watch movies. And this documentary is for all those who miss those days, including filmmaker Kevin Smith. Well, if you haven't seen him in a long time, he's unbelievably skinny now. I mean, you think of the uh, overweight auteur of films like Clerks and Mall Rats and uh, Chasing Amy. Now, unbelievably skinny. I know he's had health scares and all the rest of it, but just want to point that out. And he's talking about Blockbuster and what that life was like. But I, I completely agree with Christy Lemire's uh, review of it, which is that after a while, it's kind of just the same thing over and over. I like the documentary. I'm going to give it two and a half Maple Leafs because, again, I could relate to what these guys were talking about and the way they would you know, mention the smell of a blockbuster, the tangible feel of a, a DVD, of putting it in there, the excitement of doing that you know, long before streaming, the effort, the, the fear about a late fee. I, and what I found most informative was this. If you think what killed blockbuster, all of us right now, any of you listening would say Netflix, right? Of course. Everybody used to go to a video store, the Netflix game, why the hell do I have to go to a video store? It's a lot more convenient just to stream it, and I just get Netflix. And even before everyone started streaming, I was the old school. I liked to actually order the Netflix DVD. They'd send it to you, whatever, next day delivery. You'd watch it, put it back in the mail. Away you go. Redbox. I don't know if Redbox is probably still around. I'm sure that Redbox is still around. I did Redbox from 2010 to 2012. 99 cent rental. Are you kidding me? I can watch Logan. I'm in for a dollar. Dollar seven. 24 hour rental. I'm in. Uh, but of course, now it's just so much more convenient to stream. And even as I've told all of you, I have DirecTV. Sometimes I just order movies off DirecTV. It's very easy, very convenient. So I, I, as much as I'm laughing about this wonderful time in our lives that you go to Blockbuster, I am laughing at these guys reminiscing because I'm like, bro, if tomorrow streaming and Netflix was eradicated, let's suppose, we had to go back to the video store, that would suck. Quite simply, there's no reason I want to go back in my car, drive to a video store, sit in the rain. I'm like, no, I don't want to do this. Like, it's much easier this way. So it's funny when you're watching people pine for a different age, but ultimately, I can't tell you I want to go back in my time machine to go back to that era. And all the people in this movie do want to do that. And I admit, the part that I miss is browsing the shelves looking at movies. I do miss that. But listen, you can browse at home when you're streaming all those titles. <laughs> Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, whatever you want. Like it's, I get it. It's not the same thing as walking around. It's not the same as um, reading a book on Kindle as opposed to holding a hardcover. And yes, I still go to Barnes & Noble. No, I don't go to the library anymore. Uh, but I did it as of a few years ago. I need to get my library card now that I, since I moved to Jersey. But I mean, I love the concept of the library. My dad loves libraries. My dad goes to the library once a week. Loves the library. So I, I love that there's a fascination and joy for it. But as far as a documentary is concerned, it's a lot of same old, same old after a while. And again, I just don't agree with the central thesis, which is that we need the video stores, that we miss the video stores, or we're deprived of something. I'm just not buying that, uh, that argument. Um, the other part of it, too, as I said, I would have thought Netflix killed it. That's what actually what I found most interesting is they explained it wasn't Netflix. It was bad business decisions. And if you're interested in all of that, they explain it very well that basically they were not liquid, didn't have enough funds. Uh, and Netflix at one point wanted to get into business with Blockbuster and Blockbuster said, nah, we're good. Think about that. Netflix could have combined with Blockbuster. Blockbuster, yeah, I think we're good. And it wasn't that they were so outdated in thinking everyone was going to want to have the physical DVDs or VHS cassettes. In fact, Blockbuster was having a streaming model. They were preparing for the advent of what was happening. It's just that it was poor business decisions. And ultimately, it was a disaster. It went from literally, there was a new Blockbuster being built in America every like 17 minutes to finally what is the real conceit of this movie, which is, the last blockbuster. And this is where the movie is at its best, showing the one blockbuster video still in operation in Bend, Oregon. Now, if you're a fan of uh, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, you know, as I do, that there were still some in Alaska. And that John Oliver, very famously, and it's in the documentary, raised a bunch of money for Russell Crowe's auction, <laughs> the jock he wore from Cinderella Man, sent it to the video store in Alaska. And they have the whole scene. They're walking around. Yeah, here's the stuff that John Oliver sent. And the owner's hilarious. He goes, I don't know who the hell John Oliver is. I got to be honest. He's not my demographic, not my cup of tea. But my phone started ringing like, oh my God, dude, you got to watch got to watch this show. He's mentioning you. He's mentioning the store. And sure enough, we got this shipment. And I told him, hey, thanks for the stuff. Just so you know, though, like if, if we can't stay functioning, like, I don't know what you want me to do with this stuff. I said, well, it's yours to keep. Okay, sure enough. So three stores were in Alaska, all those closed, and eventually Bend, Oregon still going strong. And as I'm watching this thinking, there's no way this is still in operation. But as the end credits tell us, as of the filming of this movie, 
Blockbuster Video is still going strong in Bend, Oregon. And the owner is priceless. Sandy Harding, uh, clearly a movie lover, someone who cares very deeply about her employees. She'll go and buy 20 copies of Avengers Endgame and stock up the shelves. And it's become this, you know, last monument, the last, the Mohicans when it comes to video stores. But again, there's a dude from Spain who flies there just to go to Blockbuster Video. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. You, you spent like a, a grand to go to Bend, Oregon, just to go into a Blockbuster video store. People are crazy. But hey, I'm not going to rain on your parade. If that's what you want to do, you want to go back to the Blockbuster video store. The, the, the doc also tells stories about a guy like Jamie Kennedy, how he became a star, the whole concept of Blockbuster in general. As Peter DeBruge of Variety says, it's more entertaining than educational, but just informative enough to do the trick. And Brian Lowry, the film proves timely in its warning about how a brave new digital world can claim casualties in terms of existing businesses and social interaction. Brian Lowry, CNN.com. That's, that's what you're going to hear, right? Hey, we miss the element of going to a video store and asking the guy, hey, what's good? I'll never forget at Ryerson, where I went to college, uh, first year I went and I kept hearing about this movie called Fargo, and it was on video, and I asked the guy, is it good? He goes, yeah, I got this. I'm just, I'm in the mood for something very light. It feels a little like, you know, I've got to pay attention. He goes, dude, I'm telling you right now, it's a great movie. And Fargo is one of the greatest movies of all time. So we do miss that moment where you could ask him at the video store. What I found actually my favorite part of the documentary was when they went there, the one guy started making fun of somebody's picks. That was always my favorite part. Here's Aaron's selections. Here's Jill's selections. Here's George's picks of the month. And you go there, you go, George is a moron. That movie stinks. I couldn't disagree more with this guy's taste. And you go, Jill is awesome. Jill is a cinephile. She's uh, praising Fellini's eight and a half. I'm like, I think Jill and I would get along well. We definitely have the same movie taste, even though I'm 16 and wear braces. Uh, that was my, my favorite part of the last blockbuster, the, the movie choice. It's like going to a bookstore, right? This is the, you know, here's uh, Joe's recommendations. Here's Bill's recommendations. Now you go, then they tell you according to this algorithm on Netflix. Well, if you enjoyed this, you'd also enjoy this. Last blockbuster, I'm giving it two and a half Maple Leafs. I feel like I've talked about the movie more than I should have, but clearly it stirred up emotions within me. Joe, your thoughts? And man, I I liked it for the nostalgia. I did like it for that. I, I grew up at a time at the very tail end of Blockbuster, but for me and my brothers, it was more going there, selecting movies, but then also in the advent of PlayStation and Nintendo 64, we would go there to rent video games. And so I do miss the tangible quality of being able to actually hold and pick up the film like like they were describing in the film and the community aspect of it. But I, yeah, I thought there was just a little too much of it. A lot of it could have been cut out. What did you think of, because um, I thought this was the weirdest part of the movie, Lloyd Kaufman, the creator of Toxic Avengers in it, and they only have him on for maybe a minute. I feel like he said, you can have me for two minutes exactly, and that they <laughs> held true to that, you know? It was I weird. I agree. He was a guy that was kind of interesting, right? Because he was different. He had different uh, opinions than everybody else, but definitely underutilized. I mean, I'm with you. Like, if you're doing a last blockbuster, you'd think you could get more star power all due respect than Jamie Kennedy. Now, I get it. Jamie Kennedy was in a blockbuster ad, therefore got his break in movies, okay? But, like, it would have been nice to see, I don't know, Matt Damon talking about Blockbuster. You know, like there's there's literally no star part yeah. of the movie. It's a bunch of like C-grade comedians and Kevin Smith, with all due respect. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking, because they mentioned briefly that Tarantino worked at a video store, and I was thinking, did they maybe try and get Tarantino? I would have loved to hear about his experience working in a video store and how that shaped him as a filmmaker. You know, I think there's a story there. Great point. And Jamie Kennedy says that. I think it's in Scream. He's playing a video store clerk, and he said, I based it on Quentin Tarantino. And I read a bunch of interviews about him, about he'd be the kind of guy, you go to the video store and say, hey, what are you into? Oh, I like vampire movies. Great. I recommend blah, 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 but avoid this. And then they actually show a clip of the movie, and you're like, yeah, he, you're right. Absolutely right, Joe. The most famous guy ever to work in a video store is Quentin Tarantino. I know it wasn't Blockbuster, but seriously, how is Quentin Tarantino not, you know, doing a Zoom interview for the last Blockbuster? He's a motor mouth. He'll talk movies all day. That's a giant miss and a great point for you that we did not get QT talking in the last Blockbuster. Again, though, if you like the movies, you like movies of that era, I recommend it. It's on Netflix. Let's do a couple of other films before we get to uh, Azazel Jacobs. Uh, and his new film, French Exit. Hollywoodland. A detective, Adrian Brody, uncovers unexpected links to his own personal life as he probes the mysterious death of Superman actor George Reeves' Ben Affleck in 1959. A possible affair between the actor and Tony Mannix, Diane Lane. By the way, I know this was 15 years ago. It still looks great. The wife of a studio executive, Bob Hoskins, might reveal the truth. Happy to see Bob Hoskins in the movie, all right? Who's not getting fired up for little Bob Hoskins? Who framed Roger Rabbit? Mona Lisa. What do we got, Bob? 
He plays the uh, rather ornery studio executive who is married to Diane Lane. He's having an affair with a Japanese woman that doesn't speak English. And Diane Lane's having an affair with Superman, Ben Affleck. And I can see why now, 15 years later, this is one of the best performances of Affleck's acting career. Because maybe there were some echoes of his own life in this. A guy who was typecast as Superman, who was reluctant to play the role, who did it because he needed the money, and then couldn't find anything else. And... Felt miscast as Superman, but eventually that's all anyone ever saw him as. And he wanted to be a producer and a director, i.e. like Ben Affleck. But whenever he started his production company, things did not work out. And unfortunately, life ended in failure. And it's a a real credit to Ben Affleck that I think he gives uh, a soulful performance, one that he clearly uh, imbues his own character and, and what we know about his persona and his background. And I thought it was a really charming role because, A, he's very seductive with Diane Lane, older woman, but then you can sense the frustration of an actor. And I think there's so many actors out there who go, hey, listen, I'm grateful for the work, but what else is out there? Like, as an actor, do I have to say yes to everything? And the answer is yes. The movie, I think, is less successful when focusing on Adrian Brody and his journey, which is the present day aspect of it, and just him looking back at you know what happened to Ben Affleck. So as a movie, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. I'd give it two and a half Maple Leafs, but I'd give it four Maple Leafs for Ben Affleck's performance. So if anybody has not seen Hollywood Land, I'd recommend it, especially if you're an Affleck fan. And the big question I have for you, Joe, is this. What the hell happened to Adrian Brody? Like this guy wins an Oscar for The Pianist, goes on stage, has the chutzpah to kiss Halle Berry. I mean, can we all live this life to have a schnoz like Adrian Brody, win an Academy Award, and then kiss Halle Berry? Uh, and what the hell happened to this guy? Like, he did not parlay his Oscar success into anything. I remember he was in the Darjeeling Limited, a movie which I like maybe more than most because it's a Wes Anderson movie set in India. Big Jean Renoir reference there, uh, especially in the work of Anderson and Scorsese. But, Joe, what happened to Adrian Brody? I think he's a good actor. Great voice. What happened to this guy? I don't, I don't know. That's a really good point. I'm trying to think of the last time I even like saw him in a trailer for something. I'm, I'm going back to maybe... The Grand Budapest Hotel, and that came out maybe six, seven years ago at this point, but he should be bigger. I love him as an actor. He's great in The Pianist. He's great. I'm looking at his IMDb right now, actually, Adnan. He's going to be in the movie The French Dispatch, uh, the next Wes Anderson film, so maybe he'll be making a return soon. All right. I mean, I guess if he's just relying on Wes Anderson to keep him alive as far as an actor, that's one thing, but I would think he would have parlayed his success in other things. The movies that we just mentioned are all Wes Anderson movies, but I am looking forward to that film. I think it was supposed to come out last year, if I'm not mistaken, but the French Dispatch got pushed because everything happened with COVID. Should be a big Oscar contender as usual, but we'll see. Uh, Manola Dargus, who's a great critic, by the way, New York Times. The movies love a tasty murder, which is why Ben Affleck has packed on the pounds, slipped on some tights, and given this exasperating film far more than it gives in return. Uh, that's the classic Affleck, much better than the movie. And Trevor Johnson of Time Out. It's worth seeing for Affleck alone, deftly communicating the distance between the put-on cardboard debonairness of this hunk about town and the growing uncertainties beneath his Superman outfit. One more movie just to revisit here quickly. Silver Lines Playbook. Hadn't seen it in a long time. People ask me, you know, your movies are awfully grim, a little dour. Are you a sullen individual? So I tell them, okay, if I want a feel-good movie, I love Silver Lines Playbook. And it's not just because I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan and I laugh when Robert De Niro is mad about Deshaun Jackson spiking the ball at the one-yard line and mocking Bradley Cooper for wearing Deshaun Jackson jersey. No, it's actually much more than a football movie. It's one of those great movies that I think appeals to both men and women. If you haven't seen it, after losing his job and wife and spending time in a mental institution, Pat Soltano, Bradley Cooper, Winds up living with his parents, Robert De Niro and Jackie Weaver. Remember Jackie Weaver in Animal Kingdom? I can't remember if she got an Oscar nomination for Supporting Actress, but gosh, she was great in that movie. He wants to rebuild his life, reunite with his wife, but his parents would be happy if he just shared their obsession with the Philadelphia Eagles. Things get complicated when Pat meets Tiffany, Jennifer Lawrence, who offers to help him reconnect with his wife if he'll do something very important for her in exchange. I've never read the book. It is what you would categorize as whimsical. Matthew Quick wrote the novel. And David O. Russell, the man who loves a thousand takes, adapted the screenplay and directed it. You've seen the clips online before of David O. Russell directing. I mean, he just screams at his actors. Seems like just an unconscionable ball breaker. I mean, uh, Michael Mann, known for a lot of takes. Stanley Kubrick, maybe the heavyweight champion, a lot of takes. But David O. Russell, all right, take 54. Take 58. It's just brutal. I don't know how the hell, I, I don't even know why actors want to work with this guy. But having said that, he rings out some incredible performances. Bradley Cooper, never been better. Jennifer Lawrence, never been better. Won an Oscar. Robert De Niro, best performance in years. Jackie Weaver, as good a performance as Animal Kingdom. Chris Tucker, resuscitated. What happened to Chris Tucker? Julia Stiles, best performance in a while. Shea Wiggum, love him. He plays the brother. 
John Ortiz, good role. Anupam Care, if you're a fan of Indian movies, Bollywood. He plays Dr. Cliff Patel. Ends up being a huge Eagles fan. My parents love Anupam Care. Uh, it's a really charming movie. It's funny. It's sweet. The reason I mentioned it is last week on the pod, I kept thinking to myself I was wrong when I said, in talking about dance sequences, ending another round, I said, hey, remember Silver Linings? We got a six. It's not we got a six. We got a five. Because if you'll recall, the parlay, which by the way is just outlandish. I mean, if you don't like the movie, the reason you don't like the movie is you go, this is the dumbest thing ever. De Niro's buddy is going to literally bet the house on the Cowboys beating the Eagles and a parlay that Bradley Cooper, Jennifer Lawrence are going to get at least a five in a dance competition. Like, what, what, what world are we living in here? But that's what the rules are, okay? And if you love the movie, you love that because it's so much fun. The dance sequence is one of the best parts of the movie. That's why I want to rewatch it again, especially when they play White Stripes, Fell in Love with a Girl, and they're both doing the kind of Uma Thurman Pulp Fiction dance. And then there's this great kind of jazzy dance. I mean, it is a wonderfully orchestrated sequence. The way that Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence make magic together. And then what happens is they go to the judges and it's 4.8, 4.6. And one of the dancers next to him goes, oh, sorry, guys, a lot of fours. And it's 5.3 for an average of 5.0. Pregnant pause. Cooper and Lawrence yell like Tarzan. De Niro and his cronies go wild. They have this huge hug. And the funniest line of the movie is the judge goes, why are they so excited about a five? It's honestly, it's, it's as funny a line as I would say when Harry met Sally, I'll have what she's having. As in, hysteria is happening. Meg Ryan's having an orgasm. Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence and family are losing their minds. And a very mild-mannered character, Rob Reiner's mom says, I'll have what she's having. And here, a rather mild-mannered milquetoast judge goes, why are they so excited about a five? <laughs> hilarious line, hilarious movie. And then a very sweet ending. I mean, when Cooper runs after her and he realizes that she wrote him the note and he tells her, I'm sorry, it took me so long to catch up. I love you, Pat. Really sweet movie. I, honestly, I, I, there's not enough movies that are made like this. And I know it's a little all over the place at times, but I, I like the, the, the romantic dramedy aspect of it. And it's funny and it's charming and uh, it's wacky in a good way. Joe? Yeah, I mean, it, it covers all the bases. And and I haven't seen it in a few years, but I just remember loving it. There, You know, Jennifer Lawrence, there was a reason why she won the Oscar that year. But then Chris Tucker... I remember he came out of retirement to do this film. I think David O. Russell coaxed him out of retirement for it. So there's another guy that I would just love to see have a renaissance again. Yeah, we got to find out what the hell happened to Adrian Brody, Chris Tucker. That's been the big discovery today on Cinephile. Damon Wise of Empire. Jennifer Lawrence is the standout in a totally, un- in a, excuse me, in a tonally uneven, eccentric romantic dramedy that fuses the Fisher King. Love that movie. With the Romy and Michelle's high school reunion. Haven't seen that movie. All right, after the break, entertainment news, and we'll also speak with Azazel Jacobs. He's the director of the new film opening this Friday, French Exit, and the Mount Rushmore of performances of actual Hollywood stars. Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Well, really sad news from the world of entertainment. One of the funniest characters ever in television history. Arrested Development, one of the top five funniest sitcoms ever, and Jessica Walter, who never hit a false note. It's a great parlor game. If you have friends, you say, okay, who's your favorite Arrested Development character? Job, listen, Canadian, Will Arnett, love him. Uh, it's tough to dispute Job, okay? But George Sr., uh, listen, Jeffrey Tambor playing dual roles, as a matter of fact, and his brother Oscar. I think Bateman's a great straight man, as Michael Bluth. Um, you could make a case for George Michael. You could certainly make a case for Tobias Fionke, David Cross. But I'm telling you, the one that I think just pound for pound, Jessica Walter as Lucille Bluth, never disappointed. Withering sarcasm. Uh, the way that she would crush Lindsay about her weight, even though Portia de Rossi is like borderline anemic. The deliveries towards George Sr., to Buster. Didn't mention Buster. Tony Hale, great performance. I mean, everything with Jessica Walter is amazing. My, my cousin sent me like a 10-minute clip of Jessica Walter Arrested Development Moments. It's the hardest I've laughed so far in 2021. So please do indulge as she unfortunately passed away. If you don't know enough about her career, actually went five decades. You know Arrested Development. You probably know Archer. 
But play Misty for me, probably her first big film with Clint Eastwood. Was in the group in Grand Prix. I uh, was also in season one of 90210. She was a uh, voice of Matrix Fran Sinclair on Disney Channel's Dinosaurs and earned an Emmy for starring as the title character of Amy Prentice. Also earned Emmy nominations for her work on Trapper MD and Streets of San Francisco. But for many, Walter will be best remembered as the caustic, comically out of touch Lucille Bluth on Fox's Arrested Development, who famously didn't know the price of a banana or how to wink. Over five seasons, she earned an Emmy nomination and two SAG nominations. How did she only get one Emmy nomination? How did she not win? What a joke. A jump from Fox and Netflix several years in between seasons three and four. Also, by the way, a dedicated record of service to her fellow actors, serving as the national vice president of the Screen Actors Guild, second ever, and was elected member of the SAG Board of Directors for over a decade, and is married to, uh, I want to say, Ron Perlman, who I loved in Autofocus. Did not realize they were married for a number of years. Ron Perlman, uh, Angels in America, was on Broadway. He played Roy Cohn, a famous he won a Tony Award for that performance. So uh, I believe he recently passed away too, maybe a year or two ago. So sad news there. But Lucille Bluth, Joe, one of the all-time great comic creations. So good, so good. And I don't know if you watched the show Archer too, but she is so fantastic as the voice actress there, um, as the matriarch of that spy agency. She, just to her comedic timing, was fantastic. And you're right. The, the cast of Arrested Development was great. Each member, each member of them, even the minor characters like Carl Withers. But she was just absolutely amazing in that role. It's really sad to see her go. And just to have longevity like that, I mean, that's a career that anyone would be envious of. There's still some chicken on that bone. You done with that? I mean, Carl Weathers. <laughs> Carl Weathers, incredible as an unemployed actor. I'm so glad you mentioned Carl Weathers. Now I, now I got to go watch some Arrested Development. Um, Nomadland won the top prize, Producers Guild Award. Why is that important? If you win the PGA, you get a great chance at winning Best Picture. So far, Nomadland is cleaning up. Producers Guild Award, they win there. It's one of the key indicators for the Academy Awards. Edged out the closest competitors in Emerald Fennel's Promising Young Woman, Lee Isaac Chung's Minari, Aaron Sorkin's A Trial of Chicago 7. So honestly, as we sit here, March 30th, when we're recording, I'll be shocked, shocked, if any other film beats Nomadland. I mean, they won everything. Golden Globes, Producers Guild, you name it. They're winning everything. Uh, Toronto Film Festival. Uh, all the acceptance speeches pre-recorded, No Man Land giving a more produced glitcher presentation than we've seen at other awards shows. It should be noted, last year's 1917 from Sam Mendes lost the Oscar after wins from the PGA and the DGA to Parasite, which only had the coveted SAG cast ensemble prize under its belt. Coincidentally, Nomadland is not nominated at SAG in their top category, leaving an opening for a film to pick up some momentum and try to catch up. Another interesting note is that every time a film has won Best Picture at the Oscars without a directing nomination, the film has won the PGA preceding it in the existence of the Guild Award. So, uh, listen, it's a favorite to win. That's a good point, though, about the SAGs. Hey, if Trial of Chicago 7 wins, very actor-heavy ensemble, maybe it's got a chance. We'll see. Uh, but I doubt it. I think it's going to be Nomadland. One other bit of news to pass along. Army Hammer, the hammer keeps dropping. Dropped from another film in the wake of sexual assault allegations and continuous online chatter. No longer attached to the thriller Billion Dollar Spy. It was set to star opposite Mads Mikkelsen, who, amazing, of course, in another round. Cold War drama coming from filmmaker Emma Asante. Instead, he's gone. Billion Dollar Spy was the one last remaining film on Hammer's slate, meaning every studio that was in business with Hammer prior to the allegations, has now officially cut ties with the actor. So, listen, I don't know what he did. I don't know what he didn't do. Sounds like at the bare minimum, he had an affair. He's also got cannibalism fantasies. Ah, listen, I don't know, right? This is all going to be solved and discovered. The bottom line is this. His career is on severe hiatus. All other upcoming projects in which he'll appear on screen had already wrapped production prior to the allegations. Could you imagine you have a movie right now in the can starring Army Hammer? Like, we can't put this movie out here. Nobody wants to watch this guy. He's toxic. He may have been uh, abusing women, assaulting them, just deranged fantasies. Incredible fall from grace for Army Hammer, which is very, very unfortunate to see. Also, great article from IndieWire if you're a scorsese file like me. Uh, listen, nobody loves movies like Marty. Okay? When I asked Bob De Niro, describe Scorsese in three words, he said, lover of film. One of the greatest directors of all time, my favorite of all time. He's working on his new movie, The Apple-Backed Killers of the Flower Moon. I believe they're going to start shooting next week is what I read the other day. Leo's there. Bob's there. Jesse Plemons playing the lead role. Jesse Plemons. I mean, this is going to be amazing to watch this movie. Um, but Scorsese, as always, loves talking about other movies, particularly giving love to foreign films. So put together his list of the top 40 films. I've seen these out there before, but someone sent it to me, so I just want to quickly scan a couple of these just to mention them to you if you haven't seen them. Uh, this isn't even, by the way, I don't want to make this clear. It's not like, you know, 
40 greatest films of all time. It's called literally 40 films a director wants you to see. One of those is a movie he executive produced in 2020, which was number four in my top 10 of the year, Pieces of a Woman, starring Vanessa Kirby, Academy Award nominated. If you know Marty, you know he loves 2001 A Space Odyssey. That's on the list. Big Kubrick guy. Eight and a half, Fellini. He wrote that very long, very passionate piece about Fellini recently. Um, Citizen Kane, naturally. Contempt. He loves Jean-Luc Godard. The Exorcist, great choice, obviously. Black Klansman included. How about that? Some love to Spike from Marty. Marty, you said Malcolm X was one of his top 10 films of the 90s. And for him to include 40 films you got to watch right now, boom, Black Klansman is on the list. So is Antonioni's La Ventura, a film he loves. Uh, the Leopard, I've heard him talk about a lot. That stars Burt Lancaster. Lucino Visconti directed that back in 1963. Uh, One-Eyed Jacks, I'm a little surprised. That's Marlon Brando's only film that Brando directed, but clearly Marty's a big fan of that. Paisan, I think that's Rossellini. It's one of those Italian... Uh, uh, new Wave film, so to speak. Psycho, he loves. Rebel Without a Cause. The Red Shoes, which is Jean Renoir. Excuse me, Michael Powell. Powell and Pressburger did The Red Shoes. The River, I was just looking at. That is Jean Renoir, which is the film I mentioned earlier, was a big influence on Wes Anderson's The Darjeeling Limited. Salvatore Giuliano, good uh, Italian film, 1962. The Searchers, John Wayne, which was in many ways the basis for what he was doing with Taxi Driver, The Shining, another Kubrick mention. Ugetsu, which is a great Japanese ghost movie. And Vertigo which is one of my favorite movies of all time, Hitchcock. Marty's as big a fan of that one as well. So it's always fun, Joe, when uh, the great filmmakers tell you, hey, listen, you got to watch this movie. And it's not just as I mentioned, I, I'm telling you, any interview ever with Scorsese, he's going to mention Eight and a Half and Citizen Kane and Vertigo and Ugetsu and The Searchers and Psycho and The Red Shoes and The River. But the fact he included Black Klansman, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, it, it's really cool. Like, talk about one of just being such a great cinephile and how much he loves, you know, and advocated for Midsommar and a movie like Hereditary and also just classic horror movies too, like The Haunting in 1963. I saw that as a teenager and was so scared, Adnan, after watching it. And the thing I like about this too is that he also includes small little blurbs of why he likes each film. And so it's definitely a list worth checking out for everyone out there. Yeah, I'm glad you include those because you're right. He's not just some uh, snobby guy who's mentioning movies uh, that he loves because they're passionate to him. He'll mention Dead of Night, 1945, other horror movies. Like that. I mean, he's a big Val Luton guy. I remember there's this documentary, so I keep talking about Val Luton, those great B-movie horror films. And you're absolutely right. Ari Aster, like as far as contemporary directors... Marty loves himself some Ari Aster. And uh, if you haven't seen Hereditary or Midsommar, Midsommar I had in my you know, top 10 of that year. Number four, I think I had it. Me and Scott Rogowski, huge fans. Go do yourself a favor and go watch Midsommar. Do yourself a favor and also watch Friends Exit, opening nationwide in theaters this Friday, April 2nd. Now it's time to talk to that director of that movie. A pleasure to talk to Azazel Jacobs. You can follow him on Instagram, by the way, A-Z-A-Z-E-L-J-A-C-O-B-S. The new film is called French Exit, and it's uh, going to be available this Friday, April 2nd. Azazel, I saw the film last night, really enjoyed it. French Exit, it's really funny. It's a great dark comedy. The synopsis, for those who are unaware, a widowed New York socialite and her aimless son moved to Paris after she spends the last of her husband's inheritance. Along with being a really funny movie, and by the way, in the midst of quarantine, a movie that's very wistful, because I imagine being on the streets of Paris and what I would like to be in France with my kids. But it really is a showcase for Michelle Pfeiffer. She's just incredible in this movie. So funny, withering sarcasm, dramatic, theatrical. Let's talk about Michelle Pfeiffer. What was it like working with her? One of the best experiences of my life. I mean, she was uh, everything I could hope for and more she was i mean what was amazing from the very first meeting with michelle was to find out that somebody that had proven themselves over and over and over again was still hungry and still interested in doing something that she didn't know how it was going to turn out and just go into kind of the strange odd odyssey that french exit is yeah, nominated for a Golden Globe Award and the Best Actress, Most in Picture, Comedy or Musical. I think she should have won, all the respect to Rosamund Pike who won. But listen, critics have loved the performance. And you just mentioned how it's one of the highlights of your life. Ahead of the premiere, Michelle Pfeiffer stood at the New York Film Festival, making the film ranked in the top five movie-making experiences of her career. Why do you think she enjoyed the experience so much? I think it was a, a mixture of definitely, I feel, I'm, I was... I'm happy that I felt like I could, I did whatever 
I could to help her feel that way and the crew as well. But I do think that the a lot a long a big part of the credit has to go with her co-actors and, and especially with Lucas Hedges. I think that you don't get the performance that Michelle gives without feeling completely comforted and embraced and supported in the way that Lucas did with her, with his character, Malcolm. Yeah, it's like tennis. You're going to have a doubles partner to be able to hit the ball back and forth to. That makes sense. It's funny, watching her performance, as I mentioned, the theatricality of it, you know, older woman whose best days are behind her, who's squandered all her wealth. It reminded me a little bit of Gloria Swanson in Sunset Boulevard. Was that at all an influence for you? Absolutely. I, yes, I'm so happy you saw that. I mean, that's a, that, those are the films that I love, and I could see... I mean, look, that, that film was a masterpiece, so I'm not definitely not put, comparing my film, but I definitely find a lot of inspiration. But ultimately, this idea of escaping into a world, um, into a world that most of us can never get into um, and just going and seeing how interesting and odd it can be was a huge pull for me to make this film. Yeah, I just, I mean, I love Sunset Boulevard. I mean, the scene where she says, I am big, it's the pictures that got small. It reminded me of Michelle's character, the way that she still, you know, throws money around left and right. And it's like, oh, you know what, I'm, she's still living the life as if she is big. It's the pictures that got small, whether it's the private detective or you know, the homeless man she's giving money to. It's like, no, I, I'm still a big deal, even if nobody thinks I'm a big deal anymore. That's right. That's completely right. I mean, there, it's, and there's something I love about people whether they're wealthy or not or famous or not, that just don't seem to care about <laughs> anything other than what they are interested in. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the scene in the uh, the restaurant, I won't give it away, but where she gets upset with the waiter is an example of what you're saying. Just just couldn't care less. This is what we're about, and we're just going to get our matters taken care of. Tracy, yeah, who doesn't want to do that? <laughs> who doesn't want to respond to a rude waiter in the same way that she does? Oh, it's so great. Um, Lucas Hedges, you mentioned, he's really good in the movie. He's got that great deadpan style about him. But I thought it was... You know, what's, what's underrated about the movie, which I did not realize going in, I knew it would be funny, I knew it would be a showcase for Michelle Pfeiffer, but, but I thought Lucas brought a lot to the table, to your point, and I think if there's a lot of mother-daughter movies, you know, Lady Bird, there's a lot of, you know, Terms of Endearment, there's a lot of father-son movies, Field of Dreams, etc., but like mother-son movies, I, I find sometimes there's a dearth of them, and I thought this was a really sweet, poignant mother-son story, and like, the fact that you know, his, his fiance at one point is mocking him, like, why are you caring about some woman who only cared about you when you were 12 years old? I thought he did a lot of job, did an excellent job of conveying the emotion he has for his mother. It's not pity, but that genuine love that a son has. So maybe just speak a little bit about Lucas's performance. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that, and that, again, that was something that got me so excited to tell this story because it was a mother-son relationship, but in terms of who was the adult and who was the parent, that shifts from scene to scene. And in a lot of ways, Lucas's character, Malcolm, is... Is, is the same age that Francis picks him up from boarding school at 12 years old. And he's still stuck at 12 years old uh, when we meet him as a 25-year-old. As he's just, at, at some point in the film, right, she gets him a bicycle and you just get the sense this is the first bicycle. She's treat, still treating him like he's a 12-year-old boy. <laughs> and on the other side, he is somebody that you can, and, and what, what Lucas does so beautifully in my mind is he's constantly looking at his mother and looking out for his mother, trying to protect her, trying to see what she's going to do ne next, knowing that he can't hold on to her and at the same, giving her space and at the same time being there ready to embrace her however he's allowed to. Uh, the movie takes some, some definite detours and some risks, which I really appreciate, uh, involving her dead husband and a cat and a witch and all sorts of elements like that. How careful were you in filming it and putting it together to say, okay, listen, I'm going to have to take some chances here, but I don't want the audience to find it satiric. I mean, it's it's rooted in realism. How were you able to manage that as a director? It, it was it was finding a lot of humor in the fact that we can go into such fantastical places that we can have a, a seance and just <laughs> treat it like without with as big as a shrug. Like that that for me finds that's something new. Like we've had people that go, oh, they uh, uh, somebody. Uh, spirit speaks to them and they go, Oh my, wow. A spirit is speaking to me. Like we've seen that, but I don't feel like we've seen very often being like, Oh yeah. Okay. And just having this conversation. And so that shrug to it was, was, was part of the humor for me and just being able to kind of find, Oh, that's, that's actually the funny version for me about this film. And that adds to it. The fact that Tracy Letts is the voice. Cause he's got that great, 
you know, flat, uh, matter-of-fact delivery, very deadpan, which I think you're right. And <laughs> added to just the, the nonsensical, nat- not, the, not the nonsensical nature of it, but the fact that this is like a ho-hum thing. Like, yeah, okay, what do you want? What, what's up? What do you need? Yeah, he, he's so human. Oh, you know, asking him about him, you know, how has it been, you know, since he's been uh, <laughs> basically dead for a bunch of years? He's like, oh, you know, <laughs> you know, like uh, that's, that's, that's the kind of spirit I would like to communicate with. Uh, we're talking with Zazel Jacobs. Uh, the film is called French Exits, available Friday, April 2nd. I encourage all of you to check it out. Michelle Pfeiffer, as I mentioned, Golden Globe nominee for Best Actress. Would have liked to see her get a Best Actress Oscar nomination as well. But it's Yes, a- yes. What what kind of insanity is that? <laughs> like, I watched the movie. And I've seen <laughs> all the other nominees. And I go, how is she not getting a nomination? She might, I might well exactly win. the same way. Why wasn't she nominated for Best Cinematography and Best Editing? I mean, really, across the board, she would have been Absolutely. But speaking of the cinematography, were you actually able to shoot in Paris or were you in like Montreal and we Quebec were, City? We okay. were. We, were able, we shot um, some in Montreal, but we shot all the exteriors in Paris. And what a cool thing to get to do and to be over there to be shooting. Um, you'll see that, you know, we shot, we wrapped in the middle of December. So way before any of this uh, past year could even be an inkling of a thought. And just to see the passerbys in the film, when in the, the drinking in the cafe without any dawning of what was ahead, it was such a, it's such a nice escape for me that I'm really hoping the audience will enjoy too, just being able to step back into this time when, None of this was even an afterthought. Yeah, I agree. Like, I felt like I was walking the streets of Paris. And what I appreciated most was that you avoided those easy cliches sometimes you see about Parisian culture. You know what I mean? The uh, guy with the cigarette holder, uh, the pencil-thin mustache, uh, dog poop everywhere, somebody being haughty or arrogant. I'm like, I, I understood I was in Paris, but you, did, you avoided all those cliches sometimes that I think some filmmakers fall prone to. Yeah, doesn't it make you feel more being in Paris, not seeing those cliches? Because you only see those really in films. But when you travel to a place, you wind up seeing this whole other thing. Like you may go to the Eiffel Tower, but you probably won't. (laughs) Exactly. There may be a mime who shows up, but I'm like, maybe not. Maybe that's just something I see in 50s movies. (laughs) Yeah, or in Central Park. I mean, that's a better chance of that happening. (laughs) Exactly. Um, What's next for you? This is obviously a film that's been very well received. Uh, What's next for you as far as, like you said, being in the midst of this pandemic, I can't imagine how hard it's been for all artists. It has been, but oddly, I've been uh, directing an animated series uh, during this pandemic, and that's kind of uh, occurred because of the pandemic. So somebody brought to me a, a idea of a kids show and working that in a way that I was able to uh, with with remotely with these emotion capture actors and it's uh and we're just in the edit of that now so it's been kind of opened up a very strange different world that turns out to be not that strange and different than the other filmmaking worlds that i've been in which i'd say the same thing with french exit for me it's like yes i wound up walking into a really really strange world but in the end i see how it correlates to the one i live in uh pretty easily now. Yeah, it's great. Like you said, there's no excuses. If you're an artist, somehow you get the work done, you find a way. If you can't be collaborating with seeing each other, like you said, you can write scripts and animation makes a lot of sense. Last one for you on French Exit. The score I thought was really good. Where did you come with the score? Because I thought music was a really nice uh, element to the film. Oh, I'm so glad you thought so. So that score was written by Patrick DeWitt, who wrote the book and the screenplay, his brother, Nick DeWitt. And uh, he was a musician that I've long liked. He, he was in a band called Pretty Girls Make Graves. And, uh, but he, he had never scored a film before, but I felt that he, he would know this tone uh, and he would take us into all these different places than I would have ha- expected. I mean, that's really what I always hope with any collaborator is that they're going to take me someplace that I couldn't have imagined, but better than I could um, have pictured. And that's what Nick brought and him recording during this pandemic, you know, each musician separately in a way, which is so kind of an antithesis to making music when you're all feeling each other's, you know, tone and at least able to tune up together. But yet uh, I felt like he was able to pull it off so beautifully, really kind of this mixture of classic music what you would kind of expect would come from a fable into something that's going into the kind of the oddness that this world does. 
Yeah, that's a great way of describing it. It's sweet and gentle, and yet then there's kind of a zig and a zag because it's going just like the movie does in unpredictable detours, and that's yeah. what makes the film so enjoyable. It's odd, it's, it's odd but we're odd people. <laughs> exactly. And I'm an odd person because I really enjoyed it. Uh, Azazel Jacobs, the film is called French Exit. It's available Friday, April 2nd. I encourage everyone to check it out. I can't thank you enough for a few minutes here on Cinephile, and, and all the best. Awesome. Thank you so much. Mount Rushmore. All right, I thought of this idea while watching Hollywoodland, Ben Affleck, obviously in the role playing George Reeves' Superman. So how about the Mount Rushmore performances of actual Hollywood stars? And you think, obviously, timely, with Gary Oldman playing Herman J. Mankiewicz as Mank. So kick it off first with Autofocus, a film I've talked a lot about, Paul Schrader film. It's about Bob Crane, and it's an incredible expose of celebrity and also of sex addiction. And Greg Kinnear is absolute perfection, the best performance of his life as Bob Crane, him and Willem Dafoe, Dafoe, a, a Schrader regular. I thought he'd nailed this role of Bob Crane because he came across as this very likable guy, Hogan's heroes, you know, father knows best. In the meantime, he's got this seedy, lurid underbelly, which I thought Kinnear was amazing at exposing, as was Paul Schrader. So for a guy who didn't know a lot about Bob Crane, I feel like I knew a lot while watching Autofocus. Next up is Ed Wood. And this is a twin bill here, okay? It's not just Johnny Depp, who, again, might have been the performance of his career playing Ed Wood, wearing Angora sweaters. He's a cross-dresser, pencil-thin mustache, but he's got this wonderful, childlike, uh, cherubic enthusiasm. Great. Cut it. Awesome. Perfect. He's got George the Animal Steel. He's got cardboard cutouts. He's got flying saucers on paper plates, and he loves it because he loves movies. He's the worst director of all time, making Plan 9 from Outer Space, but God, he's having fun doing it. And Martin Landau won an Academy Award as Bela Lugosi. Listen, we can debate. I'm sure all of us could agree. Sam Jackson probably should have won an Oscar as Jules, uh, excuse me, Vincent. Jules and Vincent together, obviously, with Travolta and Pulp Fiction. But I got to tell you, Marty Landau is Ed Wood, Bela Lugosi, hilarious, profane, touching. I mean, he's this great actor who played Dracula, who is bemoaning Boris Karloff, and he's frothing at the mouth over what kind of a loser plays Frankenstein. And now he's stuck with Ed Wood, but Ed Wood loves him and reveres him and appreciates, Bella, you're a great actor. Yeah, but then again, he's a heroin addict, so there's that issue as well. Both those guys together, amazing. Martin Landau and uh, Johnny Depp for Ed Wood. Uh, next up for me, I'm going to go with uh, The Aviator. I thought Leonardo DiCaprio, one of his best performances, Howard Hughes. He's debonair. He's charming. He's ambitious. He's also got crippling OCD. Alan Aldo's pressing the glass, daring uh, Leo not to freak out. You know, towards the end, he just keeps repeating those same words over and over. Grows that hideous beard. He's peeing in bottles. Fingernails are not being cut. Just an incredible performance there by Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, when the movie's soaring, he's soaring. When the, when the, uh, when the pain comes, it's awfully tough to swallow. That's my third choice. I kind of want to go with, like, you know, the George Raff story, the Elizabeth Taylor story. I mean, an easy one might be uh, Renee Zellweger, obviously. We just saw her in Judy, Academy Award-winning performance there. But I'm going to go with Robert Downey Jr. as Chaplin. Because Charlie Chaplin, I mean, think about how, what a task that is. What a goal. Like, can you play Charlie Chaplin? This is like the most famous silent film comedian ever. 1A, 1B, Buster Keaton. For all the Buster Keaton fans sitting there listening, come on, give some love to the general. But the fact that Robert Downey Jr., I thought that was a, a real apex for him. You know, this is before the, the drugs and he went away and he come back as Iron Man, all the rest of it. But you go back and watch Chaplin. I just think to have the resolve to play Charlie Chaplin, to do the physical comedy. The movie itself, to be clear, is nothing to special. It's nothing to write home about. It's clunky. Richard Attenborough, I don't think, did a very good job with it. But I thought Downey playing Chaplin, awfully memorable role. And I like the fact he's going, you know, silent era. I mean, the artist I love as well, but it's not based on a real character. It's a composite characters that uh, the lead actor is playing. So, Jean Dujardin. I'm going to go with those four as my choices. Autofocus, Bob Crane, Ed Wood, The Aviator, and Chaplin. Honey Boy honorable mention for Ben Lines. Go ahead, Joe. That is such a good point about Chaplin. I'm not putting it on my list, but you're right. The physical humor and just being able to reenact that is, is pretty incredible. Um, for my list, I'm going to first and foremost agree with you on The Aviator. Fantastic film. 
and I'm going to agree with you on uh, autofocus and just how much how the movie just progressively gets darker and darker. It's amazing. Uh, for my third, I'm going to go with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and even though it's more of a minor role, Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate, Margot Robbie, I'll throw that on the list just because overall the movie I completely loved. And then Adnan, right before we started, let me know if this is kind of a, a cheat or if it works, but would you qualify being John Malkovich on there? Oh, you know what? That's actually a good call. Being the, you know, That actually makes sense. John Malkovich playing a real-life character himself. I feel it's like a bit of a cheat, but honestly, it's such a great film. I'll allow it, Joe. Go ahead. Being John Malkovich. All right. I'm going to do being John Malkovich. I figure, you know, they're they're playing, John Malkovich is playing a different character who's playing John Malkovich. I think it's I think it's perfect. Uh, so, yeah, those are my four. The Aviator, Autofocus, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and being John Malkovich. Yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, definitely great. I mean, you can't go back and think of like those old school actors any more uh, powerfully and perfectly than Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. I actually passed along my Once Upon a Time in a Hollywood DVD to my man Rick Passmore because he's, he's got a record player. So I said, I don't know what I'm going to do with this 45 here. So he's spinning records right now, listening to some great music there from QTVG put in that film. And I like the fact he did get in being John Malkovich. All right. Great stuff here in Cinefile. Thank you so much to everyone for checking us out. Um, coming up in the weeks ahead, make sure you go check out French Exit, which is in theaters this week. I see now, according to my Hollywood reporter, at least 50% of theaters are now open in America. A vaccine should be readily available by May 1st. I myself am fully vaccinated, so it's uh, great news all around. I hope all of you are staying safe and sound. I hope we'll get through this and hopefully we'll watch a lot more great movies. I'm going to try to go see nobody in theaters. Bob Odenkirk, love him from Better Call Saul. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.